This is a Federal News Network podcast. To help solve the threats of climate change posed to the oceans and cybersecurity threats to communication systems, the National Science Foundation is taking a unique approach. Through its Convergence Accelerator, NSF is both funding research and bringing together a broad group of experts, all with the goal of commercializing the innovations. For more, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the head of the NSF's Convergence Accelerator, Doug Mon. The Convergence Accelerator has a three activities. The first is an ideation phase where we invite the community to provide us ideas of national scale problems that they think we should be working on. Uh, We select the best ideas, and then we fund workshops, and those workshops become our solicitations. The community then responds to a solicitation, and then we select projects to fund. They go into phase one. During phase one, the teams are in the accelerator for nine months, and it's up to $750,000. During that nine-month accelerator, they're involved in a curriculum that includes team science, human-centered design, customer discovery, pitching and and storytelling, and and several other topics. They compete at the end of phase one, and they're down-selected for phase two, and phase two is two years and $5 million. So all total, they're in the accelerator for a total of three years. And obviously, because it's a down select, not everyone makes it to phase two. Uh, obviously, not everyone makes it to phase one. But do you guys have a limit then to the number of companies or number of projects that move into phase one? And then how many move into phase two generally? Certainly dependent upon our budget. Uh, the first cohort, the 2019 cohort, we had 43 teams in phase one. And we down selected to nine teams that are currently participating in phase two. And one of the reasons we're talking about this today is because you have another cohort for a new funding opportunity for 2021 and 2022. There's two research tracks. Just walk me through what the funding opportunity looks like uh, going forward. The announcement that came out uh, about a month ago is uh, track E is called the Networked Blue Economy. And the idea here is to serve as a platform for developing innovative and interconnected tools and techniques, and also the human engagement with ocean resources. So the projects will produce tangible products or processes or resources that will allow the U.S. and even more broadly, an opportunity to develop solutions for a more sustainable engagement with the ocean. Our track F is called Trust and Authenticity in Communication Systems. And similar, this is aimed at developing a platform of uh, tools and techniques and education to help us prevent, mitigate, and adapt to threats in our communication environment. And there's certainly an urgent need for such a platform to determine the verifiability of, of different types of data, as we've had several instances, even more most recently, fake communications associated with the COVID response. And so it's our belief that uh, this trust uh, track F will provide new tools for trust and authenticity. Now, Doug, someone may be listening to this and go, okay, how's this different than, for instance, an SBIR program or some of the other R&D type programs? There's a lot of broad agency announcements that go out that deal with R&D. Is NSF, is this modeled after another one or is this NSF's own 
kind of thought process? So there are several differences in the convergence accelerator from existing programs. The first one that people will encounter is it requires a multidisciplinary team. This is the definition of the word convergence, which means multiple disciplines, multiple institutions, and multiple types of institutions. So our expectation for someone responding to our solicitation is that they put together a team that includes industry, nonprofits, government labs, and academia, but it, it isn't just a single discipline and it isn't just for a single institution or organization. So that's a, a very different model than most are uh, familiar with. Additionally, as I mentioned earlier, it's really taking basic research and moving it down the innovation pipeline towards commercialization. If you look at an SBIR, for example, SBIR is the, the business already exists. Um, it's also a single company. In our case, because we have multiple institutions, that, that's also uh, very different. One of the other things that we talk about is sustainability. And that means by the time they finish the three years, they have uh, a sustainable solution. Uh, and that by sustainability, we mean they could actually create a startup. They could create a nonprofit. They could create a consortium. They could uh, do an open source uh, project. They could license the intellectual property. So the idea is there are multiple paths for sustainability beyond the NSF funding. We have used this year a, a broad agency announcement, which is the first time that NSF has done this. And our reason for doing so is to bring industry to the table to lead some of these projects. The first two years, we used a traditional NSF solicitation, which means it was led by an academic institution and they had industry and nonprofits and others on their team. But this year we released a broad agency announcement with the, the hope of getting more involvement from industry and having industry leading some of these teams. I want to go back to the, the two kind of different tracks. Now, both of these came from, as you said earlier, meetings and, and industry days and discussions with the community. Walk me through how you decided on the you know, network blue economy and the trust and uh, authenticity of communication systems. There were workshops hosted in 2020, community workshops, realizing, of course, because of the pandemic, they were all virtual, but we had 12 topics that we funded the workshops. And so these are the two winners out of the 12 total. Uh, we looked not only at the topics themselves, but how do they fit into the administration's priorities? How do they fit into the National Science Foundation's priorities? And so both of these topics fit very nicely there. Each workshop generated a report that is public and available and is referenced within the solicitation and the BAA. And so the community can go out and find those reports and look at uh, the full content. Obviously our solicitation is only a few pages of, from those reports, but the reports are available for people to read and understand the bigger picture. And we will link to both the BAA and the, and the grant solicitation on our website as well, just so people can uh, make it easy to find. How many awards do you get a sense you may make? We are planning to make roughly 30 awards. Uh, we have $22 million for phase one. 
And at 750,000, that's roughly 30 awards, 15 for each topic. And then phase two, again, is that something that you know how many awards yet? Or, or we, we don't, and it'll be very dependent on what gets funded in phase one and uh, what our budget is in future years. Doug Mon is the office head for the National Science Foundation's Convergence Accelerator, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. 
And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees 
And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.